0: So we are wrapping up a series this morning on what does the Bible have to say about our bodies. We've entitled it Wonderfully Made, and so that's one of the things that the God's Word has to say about our bodies is that we are wonderfully made. So as we wrap this all up together, even if this is your first time participating in the series, I, I think we can just uh, all get caught up really quick. And it'll be a good summary for those who have, who have been through the series already. So we started laying a really important foundation that we are created bodies. And that's important because what that does is it gives us our identity. It also gives us value because if I create something, it's important to me. If I knit it together and weave the fabrics together, then what comes out of it is I'm proud of and it's it's my creation. And so we should have that identity as human beings. We are created by God and for God. And we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So you should find value in who you are and, and your body because God created you and God doesn't make mistakes. Now, right away that should prompt in your heart and in your soul and mind. Yeah, but it feels like God makes mistakes because I'm broken, my friend is broken, my loved one is broken. And so we said in the second week, right, we are created bodies, created by God and he doesn't make mistakes. However, scripture also tells us that we are all broken by sin. And so we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. In Genesis 1 and 2 we see we are created by God and this brokenness that we live with was not part of his original plan but it was introduced by human beings who chose to serve themselves rather than serve God and then everything broke and we live in the brokenness. And so as we looked at scripture that week we said, okay, well the application really of being created in God's image is, is to demonstrate him to this world. So the application for the brokenness is really to try and Give some compassion in this world because everybody around us is broken. So can't we be a compassionate people? And as compassionate people, let's try to help people find their way to the healer, to the great physician. And that was the focus of last week, our Redeemer. So we are redeemed bodies last week. And so God steps down from his heavenly throne in the form of Jesus, and he takes on the brokenness of our bodies, doesn't he? and he undergoes suffering and ridicule and shame on the cross as he dies for us. And he, in that death on the cross, redeems us, which we said last week just means he purchases us. We were created in his image, we ran off into the slave market of sin, and God stepped into that slave market of sin and said, I'm gonna buy you back. I'm gonna bring you into my home and adopt you into my family. You are now a redeemed body. And so last week we said in light of that, we should glorify God in our bodies with our hands and our feet, with our hearts and with our minds and our souls. We are now the temple of God. Our body is not my own. This body is not my own. It was bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God in this body. Which brings us to today. And what we wanna say this morning is, we will be restored bodies. Now, I visited this week two of our dear family members who are in the hospital. I visited Juan Riez I visit him in the hospital. He is uh, not doing well. He needs a lot of prayer. Uh, his cancer has returned. I also visited Shirley Lawrence. Shirley's been battling health uh, problems for a number of years and, and is really struggling. Both of them believe that they're created in the image of God. Both of them are fully aware of their brokenness. And both of them have said to Jesus Christ, Uh, I am not my own. My body is now yours. Do with me what you will. And yet both of them continue to sit in their hospital rooms suffering with a broken body. So it's fair for us to follow up that we are redeemed bodies with the question, well, if I'm a redeemed body, I'm still broken. And so I do want to read for us what Scripture says in Romans 8:22 to 26. It's really some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, for, we were sa- for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that we can see is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. If you're around church long enough, you'll start to hear us say things like, it is true currently, but yet not yet fully true. It is already true, but not yet fully realized. And so you and I have redeemed bodies, but not fully redeemed yet, are they? And so Shirley and Juan can testify that even in the midst of their redeemed bodies, created in God's image, broken by sin, purchased by God, they are still groaning inwardly as they eagerly await the full redemption of their bodies. What we're describing that this morning is we're saying we will be restored bodies. One day in the future, God will restore our bodies. And what I hope we can see this morning is that future hope of the restored body should provoke in us present faithfulness. That little slogan is, is thrown around in a lot of sermons. I don't know who to give it credit to, but future hope should motivate present faithfulness. The future hope in our restored bodies should provoke in us, should motivate in us present day faithfulness. So what I want us to do this morning is first look at this future hope And then we'll close by seeing what fruit of present-day faithfulness that could motivate in us. To do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 58. You're welcome to find those in your Bible. We're also going to put them up on the screen for you. And we're going to work our way through 1 Corinthians 15 together and see what the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, has to tell us about these restored bodies that we will one day have. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're jumping in in verse 35, so in the first few verses, Paul uh, famously talks about the gospel. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is he is just celebrating resurrection. First, he celebrates Jesus' resurrection, and then he will celebrate our resurrection yet to come. Paul says, another great verse of Paul's in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 9 he says, If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then you and I are of all people to be most pitied. Everyone in the world should pity Christians if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. It's very important, and so Paul's making that case as we look at 1 Corinthians 15. But if we start in verse 35, this is what Paul's doing. So he's writing to this audience, and he's saying, Resurrection's really important. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, and then he goes on from there. We're going to take breaks as we read through this and try to explain it. Now, at first reading, I'll tell you what jumped out to me when I read those verses. Paul calling his audience fools. That's what first jumped out at me. I was like, oh, wow, that's not typically how you capture an audience is with an insult. But I think if we can paraphrase it, maybe we can capture uh, Paul's uh, emphasis. So allow me to paraphrase Paul's point here. All right, so you're having trouble with the idea that dead things come back to life. You're having trouble with the idea that if you die, you could resurrect back to life. All right, fine. So look out the window and what do we all see? Either window you look at, all of us look out the window, what do we see? All of us should see something green, some trees. So Paul's simply saying this, okay, if you're struggling to believe that something can go from death to life, then all I ask you to do is just look at the trees or the flowers or the farmer's field or the garden at your house. You take something that looks to be dead, right? These seeds, they're dead. And so you take something that is dead and you put it into the soil. And then you know what happens? It comes to life and it produces a fruit. So Paul's saying, hey, listen, don't be foolish. You're struggling to think that our creator God can't take something that is dead and bring it to life. He's like, the whole ecosystem works on this whole principle. Dead things fall from the tree. They go into the ground and they produce life. The farmer fills his field with little dead things, and then they come up and produce life. Now, for the scientists and the botanists in the crowd, I am aware that technically these uh, seeds are classified as not as dead. I'm sure you can appreciate, though, that Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, and he's simply trying to come up with a metaphor for us to understand a principle from Scripture. And so he's saying, in the same way that, for all intents and purposes, this is dead. And it's going to go into the ground, and then life is going to come up. And in the same way, this is how God has created the world. He takes things that die, and then he brings them back to life. So let's not be foolish and imagine that God can't bring us back to life when we die. The whole world he created does this. He goes on to say, so there's all different kinds of flesh. So, because he's trying to answer the question, if you remember, then verse 35, so what will this body be like? So if I do raise from the dead, well, what will my body be like? And Paul's saying, well, a kernel of corn isn't what a fruit of corn looks like, is it? Uh, I don't even know what this is. I think it's a cucumber seed, but it doesn't look like a cucumber, does it? So Paul's saying, what we put in the dirt isn't what it's going to look like when it resurrects. And so he says, let me illustrate it for you. Uh, there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one kind. The glory of the earthly is another kind. There's one glory of the sun, and there's another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, let's just remember creation. All right, so you want to know what this restored body is going to look like. I think Paul's saying, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be glorious because look how creative God is. So he walks us back through Genesis chapter one, the days of creation. That's what he just did. He says, day six, it was human beings and animals. Day five it was fish and birds. Day three was sun, moon, and stars. So Paul's walking us through the days of creation saying like, okay, what do we want to look at? He made humans and animals. He made birds and fish. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. They're all glorious, they're all differentiated, and God just came up with all of them out of his mind. And so if your question to me is, what will your restored bodies look like when you resurrect? Paul's saying like, God only knows, but just let's review creation. It's gonna be amazing, because we saw what he did the first time around, and if he's gonna restore all of that, can you even imagine how glorious it's gonna be? From the fish that are in the waters to the glories of the stars, they're diverse, they're glorious and such it will be in our restored bodies. I think he's saying, like, we serve a creative God, so let's let our imaginations run a little bit, look at all the different bodies he's created, and let's have hope in a future restored body and how glorious it just might be. And so that's what we do. We try to build up this future hope of what this restored body just might be like. But Paul is trying to give them a picture of what the body will be like, so he continues in verse 42. He says, what is sown? So that's a seed, right? We sow seeds, and then we, uh, they produce fruit. So what is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. So Paul's saying, okay, what will your restored body be like? I don't know. God's so creative. But I can tell you four things it's going to be like. It's gonna be imperishable, it's gonna be glorious, it's gonna be powerful, it's gonna be spiritual. Right now, you and I have a perishable body. It's gonna die. It's always breaking down. But Paul says, your restored body will be imperishable. It will not be able to, to deteriorate, it won't die, it won't decay, it will be forever young. It take everything within me not to sing right now. But I've been told not to. Uh, forever young. Uh, It will be imperishable. It will be glorious, he says. He says, your current body is dishonorable. Well, why, why would he say that? I feel like if he created it, he shouldn't describe it as dishonorable. Well, right. God wouldn't describe what he created as dishonorable, but what has sin done to us? Sin has made our bodies dishonorable. So sin's mark on our human body is selfishness and pride and lust and greed and uh, covetousness, right? Like all of that is in our bodies. And Paul says that dishonorable body will pass away and will be restored with something that is glorious, something that has no pride, no lust, no selfishness, no dishonor. So it will be imperishable. It will be glorious glorious. And it will be powerful, he says. Your current body is marked by weakness. And your glorified, restored body will be marked with power. Physical power, mental power, spiritual power. And then he says it will also be spiritual. You will have a spiritual body. So I think this word is the one that's most confusing. Because you could take that on a first reading and run with it and say like, okay, I'll have a spiritual body. That's what the resurrected body will be like. It will be spiritual. So it will be like this disembodied spirit that's floating around in the nether spaces and it will be powerful and glorious and imperishable. The problem with that thinking is it doesn't really align with what Paul's argument is and it doesn't really align with the rest of Scripture and he's going to make that clearer in a few moments here. So you try to, well, what does he mean by spiritual, then, if he doesn't mean, like, disembodied spirit? Well, that word can also be translated as filled with and governed by the Spirit of God. So I think that's Paul's point, is you're not going to have a natural body. You're going to have a spiritual body, meaning you're going to have a body that is governed by the Spirit of God. So you and I live in in a physical, natural body right now. And what we strive to do as Christians is yield our body to the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And we struggle. The scripture says the fruit of the Spirit, when we do yield to it, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And as much as I try to yield myself to the power of the Holy Spirit to govern my life, I fail. But one day in my restored body, I will just be governed by the Spirit of God. One day in my restored body, every day I will exhibit love and joy and peace and patience. That's what he's saying. It will be imperishable. It will be glorious, unmarked by sin. It will be powerful in physicality and and mental power. It will be glorious in spirituality. It will be governed by the Spirit of God. So that's what Paul is saying. He's like, I I hope you can see that God can bring dead things back to life and I hope you can see that he's a creative God. And I can't describe for you what it's gonna be like, but, but when you come up out of the ground, you're gonna look different than you look now. How? Well, you'll be imperishable, You'll be glorious, you'll be powerful, and you'll be governed by the Spirit of God. And so we're intrigued, and so we read on verses 45 to 49. He says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we are all born in the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, okay, here's an illustration for you. You and I were sons and daughters of Adam. And if you remember Genesis 1, God reached down, He took the dirt, molds it together. There's Adam, He breathes into him His breath of life. Adam is of the dirt. We are all bear Adam's image of the dirt. But he says there's a second man who is Jesus. Jesus didn't come from dirt, Jesus came from heaven. And Jesus who came from heaven, then he died and he rose from the dead. And then he took on a glorious, a spiritual body. And so this helps us see that when Paul is saying that we're gonna have a spiritual body, he doesn't mean that we're just gonna be disembodied spirits because that's not what Jesus was when he rose from the dead, is it? When Jesus rose from the dead, he was actually in a body. And so, and that's what Philippians chapter 3 says to us. It says that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's what Jesus will do when he returns. He will transform us to be like his glorious body. So let's try to remember, well, what did the body of Jesus look like after he rose from the dead? So if we try to remember the Bible stories, right? So he rose from the dead, and then what did Jesus do? Well, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Remember, he appeared to Mary in the garden after he'd resurrected and he, was, he appeared to his disciples and he was recognizable. As he appeared to his disciples and those who knew him, he was recognizable. So I think it's fair to say, when you say, well, what will our restored bodies look like? Well, you'll be transformed to be like the glorious body of Jesus after he resurrected. Well, what was that like? Well, he was recognizable. People recognized him. So I think in our restored bodies, we will be recognizable and imperishable and powerful and spiritual. You also look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. You see that he bore the scars of his death, which is interesting. He is touchable. He appears to the twelve. And he says to Thomas, remember, he says, Thomas, you're doubting. Well, come and touch my scars. He eats and drinks with the disciples. He walks around. And he speaks. He, he has a body. Now, interestingly, we... Let our imaginations wrap around this idea. He does sort of strangely seem to be able to appear in the upper room with all the doors locked. He is able to appear amongst his 12 disciples, which lets our imagination just run wild with, well, what will this restored body be like? And I think God wants us to do that. I think he wants us to be filled with hope as we use our imaginations to try and think, well, what will it be like? This imperishable, glorious, powerful body that is recognizable to other people, eats and drinks, walks around and talks, and is physical enough to be touched. And so that's what Paul is doing. He's trying to help us build up hope in what this restored body will look like as we live on in this natural body. If you wonder like how or when is this gonna happen, well, he, he tells us here in the following verses. Paul says, I, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying, you and I, with this flesh and blood, this natural body, we can't, we can't experience the glories of heaven. Because, the, uh, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So these perishable bodies can't inherit imperishable space. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal man puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory." Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is saying this is how it's going to work. If I die today, my body will go into the ground, and my spirit will go up into heaven. But if the following day you are still living and, and Jesus returns... Well, Scripture says there's going to be a trumpet sound when he returns, and in a split second, in the twinkling of an eye, here's what's going to happen. My spirit that's up in heaven is going to be reunited with my body that was just buried. And it will be transformed into the the likeness of Jesus' glorified body. It will be restored. Now what's going to happen to you all if you are here and remain? Well, your bodies have to change too. You can't go into some imperishable space in a perishable body, and so he will transform your bodies in the twinkling of an eye. Now this is really fascinating to consider. Right now up in heaven are disembodied spirits. While well, their bodies are here on earth. Dirt and ashes are in the ground. I heard a great statement this week. It says, it is good to be in Christ. So that's good. You and I hopefully are in Christ. We've confessed our sins. We've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now we are in Christ. But you know what's better? It's better to be with Christ Good to be in Christ. Better to be with Christ. Better to be with Christ. But you know what's best? Oh, here's what's best. To be with Christ in a restored body. You know how I know that's true? Because God is really going to bend over backwards to gather up all the ashes and dust particles of all the people he has created in the history of the world. I mean, come on. He doesn't have to go to all that trouble, does he? He could just create new bodies. He could just let us carry on as spirits. But he is going to do the work of gathering up all the dust particles and all the bits scattered throughout all the oceans and all the land. He's gonna gather them all up together so that that physical body can be reunited with that spirit that's in heaven and in the twinkling of an eye, he's gonna restore them together. Why? Why would he go to such effort? And here's why. It's really the reason we have this whole series over the last four weeks. So that you and I will shift our thinking and realize your body, your physical body is important to God. It wouldn't be important to God if he didn't do that. Your physical body is important to God. We have this flawed thinking that creeps into our head that, you know, what's really most important is my spirit, not my body. And we've highlighted over the last few weeks the danger of thinking that way. Because then you'll just start to think eventually, well, then all that really matters is my spiritual relationship with God and I can do whatever I want to with this body and that is just bad thinking. And so the body, mind, soul is all knit together and it's all valuable to God and what he will do one day when he returns is he will unite body and spirit together because your body matters to him. He created it. Sin broke it. And he redeemed it, and he wants to close the loop and restore it, because it's his. He created it, and he will restore it back to how he wants it to be. If you are sick or weary or in pain, or if you're walking alongside someone who is sick or weary or in pain, then truly this this should be verses that we meditate on, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We all, we all struggle, if not in this moment, then there is a moment yet awaiting you where you will struggle with pain and suffering and death awaits all of us. And so it should fill us with hope that in the future we will have restored bodies that are beyond our wildest imaginations. They'll be powerful and glorious and imperishable and governed by the Spirit of God. And so, as Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we say thanks be to God who has the victory. That's the future hope that should motivate present faithfulness. Because it's fair for you to say, well, what difference does this make in my life today? What difference does it make to me today that in the future, someday unknown, I'll have a restored body? I mean, I, I can relate to that statement. I feel the same way when I meet with a life insurance agent or someone who is working on member retirement fund. I say, I mean, I just, I, I don't care, right? Like, I don't, I want that money now. Why, I'm not motivated in this present by some hope in the future of money, It's just how I'm wired. And then Caroline tells me, just be quiet and I'll handle the conversations. I'm like, okay. So it's fair for you to say, like I don't see how this future hope can motivate me in present day faithfulness. If that's your thought, it's my thought, and maybe we're similar in the sense that like we're not at death's door and our bodies aren't very broken yet. Because I pretty much guarantee you someone who's confronting death or aware of the brokenness of their body doesn't need any convincing. But for those of you who are similar to me, let me highlight it in some, some ways, some really practical ways. And, and we're gonna use scriptures. So that's how Paul closes the chapter. He says, therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul says, here's what you do. You apply this future hope in present day faithfulness by being immovable in your faith. You be immovable in this faith that you are practicing right now. So here's an application. Let's be immovable in the winds that blow against us. And one of those winds is materialism. So materialism is one of these winds that's out there in society. It's telling us you need more wealth, you need more things, you need more, more, more. There's greed in there. There's this desire to to always have more. It's one of the winds that blows against us in our society today. And we have to say, well, based upon my future hope, I will stand immovable in my faith while the winds of my culture say materialism, greed, more, more, more. Why am I able not to yield to that? Well, because I have future hope. Because I'm I'm not going to chase the riches of today if I know that in glory... There's a, a mansion on a hill, and I have there at my disposal all, all the wealth uh, of the king of the universe. He will shower me in his blessings and in all the good things. And so I, I don't have to be moved uh, in the winds of the culture that say, yield to that materialism. I, I can stand firm and strong knowing, knowing where my future is. Here's another example. This one's more personal to me. That, that first one's easy to preach as application, because it doesn't really tempt me that much. I don't drive nice cars. Like I, That one's easy for me. Here's the harder one for me. Here's a wind that I feel, and I want to shift experiences, trips, travel. Oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great? I, I just think I, I want to go to England, Scotland, Ireland, and, and hike along the green rolling hills. I want to just tour the beaches of the world and put my feet in the water of Tahiti. I want to go and hike the Appalachian Trail, the whole thing from top to bottom. I want to go down into South America and explore the jungles. These are the things that my heart wants. There's nothing wrong with those things, just like there's nothing wrong with having a nice car and nice things. But what it does is I can feel my heart saying, maybe just move a little bit, maybe just shift a little bit so that you can have the things that you want. And I say, you know what I might do? I might be faithful to the calling that God has put upon my life. And you know what I'm going to be willing to do then? Is I'm going to be willing to sacrifice some of those things that my heart wants. Why? Because I have this hope inside of me. And this hope inside of me makes me believe that in my restored body one day, there will be a restored world that I'm living in. And the green rolling hills of England, Ireland, and Scotland have only got to be better in that restored and renewed heaven. And my body is only going to be stronger. And the beaches in this renewed heaven and earth that I will inhabit will be far more glorious than the beaches we have today. And the jungle's the same. And the trails that I'll be able to walk will be all the more glorious. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be faithful and immovable in the calling God has put upon my life now. Why? Because I have this future hope that one day in glory it's going to be wonderful. The obvious application is to our bodies. When you're undergoing sickness, suffering, grief, and death, the wind blows strong against you. How do you stand immovable in your faith, in the face of suffering and pain and death? It has to be a future hope. It has to be a hope that one day, God will renew and restore this body that I am in, and he will have me inhabit a renewed and restored creation. I mean, that has to be this future hope that causes me to stay immovable in my faith, even in this moment. That's why it says, uh, thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no battle that we can't face in which we can't say that Jesus Christ is going to have the victory. So we are immovable. That's the application. We are also in our present faithfulness. We are abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he's saying we should be immovable, but what we should do is we should do the work of the Lord. Why? Because we should know that it's not in vain. It's not in vain. Now, I don't know what work of the Lord God has called you to. We're all called to different works. But in some sense, we can go through the Scripture and see that we're all called to the same work. We're all called to some of the same work. We're all called to make disciples. That's the same work. We're all called to be generous, that's the same work. We're all called to love our enemies. We're all called to do our best in whatever it is that God has called us to do. So as diverse as our work in the Lord is in this room today, it is also unified around some generally central items. And you might say, well, I don't see the fruit that could be produced for me trying to make a disciple. I don't see how walking alongside someone and helping them follow Jesus, I just don't see how that's gonna produce any fruit. And you know what Jesus tells us? He says, listen, if you just plant the seeds, all produce the growth so he says just continue to abound in the work of the Lord it's not in vain you say well being generous I just don't see how if I give I'm gonna see any fruit from that well maybe we should just trust the Lord and his promises and you may not see the fruit of it in this life you may have to wait for the next and that's the future hope that we have that causes us in this current day to plant these seeds. oh it seems like it's in vain to love my enemy for me to return evil with good right now, that just seems like vanity. Just, there's no point. It's totally useless. This is, just a, this is just something that's dead, and I'm just throwing it in the dirt. It's totally useless. Oh, But it's not. That's how God works, isn't it? It's not in vain. It's not in vain. And so as we approach uh, this, this future hope, this day that hopefully is on all of our horizons if we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ... We trust that he will reward us for our good works, he will reward us for our disciple making, he will reward us for our moments of generosity, he will reward us for when we loved our enemies, he will reward us when we did our best, when it seemed like nobody was noticing. We have to trust that he will reward us. And so hopefully this hope for the future will cause us to maintain faithfulness in the present. Hopefully we can see that I can sacrifice my time because I have a future hope of an eternal bank of time. Hopefully we'll see that I can sacrifice my money because I have a future hope of the riches of glory. Hopefully I can see that I can endure this pain And this brokenness of this body, why? Because there's going to be a restored body. I can walk alongside my friend or family member in the midst of their brokenness and try to be uh, faithful to them and compassionate to them with the hope that gives me the strength to walk alongside them. Why? Because I believe deep down inside that in the future, their body will be restored. And I will be able to maintain my faith in the midst of walking alongside my friend because of this future hope that I have. Whatever battle comes along, the victory is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.